home improvements, home renovations, home maintenance, home repairs, and all the other challenges of home ownership. Welcome to the Thumb and Hammer Home Improvement Podcast. Hey guys, I'm Doug, and this is episode 39 of the Thumb and Hammer Podcast. Now, first things first, before I talk about anything else, I would like to talk about the schedule for this podcast. As much as I've tried to adhere to a specific schedule, I have failed miserably. I've tried weekly. That was unsustainable. I've tried every two weeks, but it seemed like there was always something that would mess that up. More recently, I've been trying to do the beginning of the month and mid-month, or middle of the month and end of the month. And that worked out well for a few episodes, but, you know, here we are again. It's been almost four weeks since my last episode. I'm trying. I mean, uh, yeah, trying ain't good enough. But it's as good as I can get right now. It's that priority thing that I may have mentioned once or twice before. Can't be in two places at the same time. Only so many hours in a day and all that stuff. So, why is this podcast late? (laughs) Well, interesting story. Actually, no. No, it's not. It's not interesting at all. But I'm going to tell it anyway. You may remember me talking about tearing a muscle in my back while shoveling snow and then re-injuring it again a while later when I was doing nothing more than just standing around watching my kids' figure skating practice. And you may remember me saying that both times I ended up in the emergency room getting injected with morphine. One of those times I was taken by ambulance. And you may remember me saying that I am always worried about possibly injuring my back again. Well, it happened again. I was getting ready to meet my wife for dinner, celebrating our 20th wedding anniversary after she got off work. And I twisted or bent or something the wrong way, and I felt that familiar twinge. So I stretched out. I rested for a bit. I was hoping that this was just going to be passing discomfort, but no such luck. Movement became next to impossible, and our anniversary dinner plans got cancelled. No hospital trip this time. As much fun as getting pumped full of morphine sounds, it really isn't. Over-the-counter muscle relaxers became my friend for the next few days. Things got dicey when nature called because getting up was a slow and painful affair, Never mind the walk to the bathroom. But the weekend passed without any major incident. I was mobile enough that I decided to go to work and power through the pain. It was there that I learned that taking muscle relaxers on an empty stomach is a really bad idea. But I managed to make it through a four-day work week. Thank goodness for the holiday weekend. I am probably at about 75% now. But sitting in a chair, you know, like at a computer, 
is still very uncomfortable. And I do a lot of sitting when I prepare, record, and produce these podcast episodes. So, there it is. It just wasn't going to happen when my back was at its worst. Heck, walking downstairs didn't happen for a few days, never mind anything else. And of course, the weekend that I was talking about, the holiday weekend, was Easter. Not that we do anything special for the holiday, but it sounds good to use the holiday as an excuse for not doing anything. But it's not like I did nothing over the holiday weekend. I spent much of the day on Sunday in the garage, going through boxes and boxes of tools and hardware and fasteners and fittings. There was my stuff, which has been packed away for at least three years since we moved. There was other stuff that was my dad's, which has been packed away for more than a decade. And then there was the stuff that was still boxed up from the first time we moved back in 2003, which was the last time that I had an actual workshop. For the first time in a real long time, I am getting a clearer picture of exactly what I have. Plus, as an added bonus, I'm also finding those things that I knew I had, but didn't know where they were, so I went on about new ones. And as I get things organized, I can start to see how my workshop is going to come together. It's got a long way to go, but considering I had nothing for 13 years while we were living in the money pit, the idea of having a functioning workshop, even if it isn't perfect for the first little while, is making me very happy indeed. At this point, functional trumps perfection. Or, put it another way, um, something is better than nothing. And that is what I want to talk about today. The idea that sometimes you have to settle for something that simply does the job. At first. For example, if you want to live in a million-dollar mansion, you may have to start on the lowest rung of the property ladder and work your way up. But I'm not even talking about something that big. I'm talking about something smaller. Much smaller. I'm talking about a workbench. In my old workshop, my old garage workshop in the house that we had before we bought the money pit, I had made a small work table that was really too small to be good for anything other than being somewhere for clutter to accumulate. Anyone who has a workshop knows what I'm talking about. Horizontal surfaces are just magnets for anything that you need to put down somewhere. And they get messy really fast. So this time around, one of my first orders of business is to build myself a proper workbench. My workshop is limited by the size of the garage, which is only about 14 by 20 feet. Now, I hear plenty of woodworkers out there complaining that their two-car garage is too small. To them, I say, shut up. Just shut up. Because I know that there's also a lot of talented woodworkers out there working in small spaces like mine. So I am confident that even though it's going to be a small workshop, it's going to work out okay for me. Anyway. 
I figure that I should have enough room for a three foot by six foot bench. Now, about a year and a half ago, I signed up for Steve Ramsey's weekend woodworker course. That's Steve Ramsey of Woodworking for Mere Mortals, someone who I've followed on YouTube for years. And I've always enjoyed his no-nonsense, down-to-earth approach to woodworking, so when he offered this course, I jumped on it, even though I knew that I wasn't going to be doing it for a while. The first project in this course, well, actually it's a pre-course project, is to build what he calls a basic mobile workbench, or BMW. I mean, who wouldn't want a BMW in their garage, right? Well, I need a workbench. And here is a simple workbench project covered in depth. Perfect, right? <laughs> Foolproof. Well, the BMW measures two feet by four feet. So I could build it as is, following the instructions and the measured drawings to the letter. And it would be a relatively easy weekend project. But you know what I did? <laughs> I, uh... I started thinking, and I started overcomplicating this thing. Because, ideally, I would like something like the Polk workbench. Something that I've mentioned before in the last episode of this podcast. Essentially, the Polk workbench has a top that is comprised of two pieces of plywood, a top and a bottom, that sandwich a grid made of plywood. It's kind of a torsion box, and it sits on a base. It's strong construction with uh, holes cut in the side, so you have spaces to stash tools while you are working so they don't clutter up the bench top. It is a really cool and functional design. So, what if I took the Polk bench top and put it on Steve Ramsey's base? Or modified Steve Ramsey's workbench to, you know, have the Polk bench top. But if I'm doing that, why not modify the base and make it bigger? After all, I would like to have a 3x6 bench instead of a 2x4. So I would be upsizing Steve Ramsey's base and downsizing Polk's bench top because Polk's bench top is 4 feet by 8 feet, which is way too big for the space that I have. I started scribbling down some sketches and figuring out some math. And as I did more research, I learned that the Polk bench wasn't designed to be a true torsion box. You see, a true torsion box makes a dead, flat surface possible. But a true torsion box also wouldn't have these neat little storage cubbies either. So what if I made sort of a hybrid between the two designs? What if? What if, what if, and while you're at it, and why not? All ways of taking something that's relatively simple and overcomplicating it. Of taking something inexpensive and, well, spending more money than necessary at this point. I spent hours doodling and calculating and estimating and tweaking and adjusting. And I saw the price tag of this darn thing 
blow up. And then it hit me. Do I need a workbench? Yes. Do I have a workbench now? No. Will the BMW be good enough to get started? Yeah. It it is. At least Steve Ramsey says it is, and you know what? I'm going to take his word for it. Does building the BMW now mean that I cannot build my ideal workbench in the future? Heck no. Will I be able to repurpose the BMW when the time comes? Probably. If not, I can at least salvage the materials or maybe even sell it. So, good enough is good enough for now. It has taken me a while to come around to this way of thinking in general. I have always been of the mindset that I only want to do things once, so it's important to do get it right the first time. And while this is a noble ambition, it does not have to be that way. Back in episode 30, I talked about setting up a temporary office space in the family room. The office will eventually be moved downstairs. That's the ideal. But until the basement is finished, I needed to set up a temporary office space. Having no office space at all, for as long as I had no office space at all, was horrible. And the temporary space is working out okay. It's good enough. Beside the fireplace, I plan to have shelves for displaying some of our knickknacks and antiques and stuff like that, as well as our stereo and TV stuff. I will either build them myself or maybe buy something from Ikea. Neither is happening right now. We have a 55-inch TV for over the fireplace, but I have to build some sort of mantle to protect it from the heat. These are all things that are on the to-do list. I mean, this is going to be the ideal. But for now, we just have a couple old bookshelves on either side of the fireplace. But at least it gives us somewhere to put some stuff instead of having our stuff sitting in boxes in storage. We also have our smaller TV set up in front of the fireplace. Now, sure, the fireplace isn't being used, but at least we are using the rest of the room. It's good enough for now. Until we can do exactly what we want with the room. We had a bunch of photo albums in storage. We plan to have them on a bookshelf in the basement when it's finished. That's the ideal. But for now, I put the bookshelf in the corner of our bedroom. It's not going to stay there, but at least our photo albums are somewhere where we have access to them instead of in boxes in storage. It's good enough for now. Probably the most compelling example is from the Money Pit House. Within a year of moving in, we realized that the family room addition was a complete cluster bleep and that we would eventually have to tear it down and rebuild it properly. And from that point, 
I absolutely refuse to put another nickel into it. Why bother when it's destined for the landfill? Construction aside, the interior design of the family room was, well, let's see if I can put this kindly. Not to our taste. Cranberry carpet. Pink and cream sponged walls. Dark blue flowered border. But surely we could live with that until we could afford to rebuild. Well, Mom and Dad-in-law's dog gave us the kick in the butt that we needed. Keanu had a little bowel problem all over the carpet. And I swear, all over isn't much of an exaggeration. So, there was that. And I also sat down and I figured out that it was going to be at least another five years before we could even think about the renovation. Five years is a long time. So, we removed the border. We painted the walls. And we had new carpet installed. The ideal would have been a rebuilt addition. But for now, paint and carpet were good enough. I wish that we had done it sooner. Well, maybe not before Keanu's redecorating, but the point is that we were living with something that we hated. Hated. While we were waiting until we could afford the ideal. It's all about finding that balance between want and finances and timing. Take, for example, your kitchen. Maybe it's seen its better days. Maybe it's stuck back in the Brady Bunch 70s with dark cabinets and orange countertop. A prime candidate for a gut and remodel. You'd like lighter cabinets, maybe a modern quartz countertop. And drawers. Drawers for things like pots and pans would be really functional and easier on the back. (laughs) I have a vested interest in making things easier on the back. Okay, so you plan for a new kitchen. But you don't have the money for it right now. So you plan your savings and you're looking at probably doing this renovation in five years. Okay. So, What do you do for the next five years? Live with the kitchen as is? Well, that does make sense. Why put any money into a kitchen that is just going to get torn out anyway? Isn't that just throwing money away? Well, it depends. Five years is a long time. If you feel a piece of your soul die every time you walk into the kitchen you might consider doing a good enough refresh. You can paint the countertop. Rustoleum has a line of paints called Transformations that you can find at Home Depot. Now, they're not a sponsor of this podcast, and I'm sure there are other brands with similar products that you'll be able to find at specialty paint stores. And just as a side note to potential sponsors for this podcast, See how easily I can incorporate your product into what I'm talking about? Just saying. But anyway, you can find paint for the countertop. It may not be 
as durable a finish as what you already have, but you only need it to last for five years, right? And the same goes for the cabinets. Why not paint them a color that you can live with for the next half decade? If it's not perfect, don't worry. It doesn't have to be. As for the drawers, if you want to invest a little more money, you can buy different slide-out organizers that fit inside your cabinet. Or, if you have some basic carpentry skills or want to develop some, you can make some drawers or slide-out shelves for inside the cabinet yourself. Buy some drawer slides and you are good to go. Just about every maker I follow has made drawers at one time or another, and you can find them on YouTube. I'll post a couple links in the show notes. But just do a search on YouTube for cabinet drawers or something like that, and something is bound to pop up. But anyway, keep the cabinet door and have the drawers inside. That way you won't have to obsess over the appearance. It's function that you're after. Because function over form, in this case, is what? Good enough. And if you do invest in store-bought organizers or slide-out shelves, you can either repurpose them in your new kitchen or elsewhere later. Or you can sell them online or at a garage sale so you're not just throwing them away. Good enough. Good enough runs so contrary to the messages that we hear. Tom Kreitler on the Money Pit Radio Show always says, Do it right. Do it once, and you never have to do it again, or something like that. Mike Holmes always hammers home the message to make it right the first time. But if you are planning a renovation in the future anyway, why not experiment a little? Practice some different techniques. Now, I'm not talking about messing with electrical or plumbing or structural changes. Experimentation in those cases is a Bad idea. But when it comes to superficial changes, go ahead. Why not? At least you're not going to be stuck looking at something that you hate. I mean, going back to our family room. Believe me, it was painful to spend our hard-earned money on new carpet when we only expected to have it for five years. But was it worth that to no longer have to live with cranberry carpet? Yeah, yeah, it was. That and covering the pink and cream sponged walls with a solid light green made the family room a much more tolerable space. I would say to myself, this all will eventually go, but for now, for now, I can live with it. I don't think my sanity would have survived five more years of pink and cranberry. The point is, if you are planning a large-scale, big-ticket renovation for some time in the future, you are planning that renovation for a reason. There is something about what you have now that you want to change. All I'm saying is that you may want to consider making a smaller change to get you through the interim. It may seem like you're wasting money and that it would be best to put that money towards the big renovation, but trust me, I had that same mindset. A few strategic changes 
might be enough to make you feel better about your home. Especially, and this is important, especially if things keep coming up that push that renovation further into the future. Now, before I wrap up this podcast, I would like to go back and talk about that priority thing for a couple of minutes. This is kind of a look at a day in the life in my world, or how my time management skills suck. Take from this whatever you want. The first thing you need to know is that I am married with a wife and a 17-year-old daughter and a dog. My wife wouldn't be happy if I forgot about the dog. I work the third shift, midnights. My wife has a day job during normal daytime hours, and our daughter does not yet drive on her own. So, I work the midnight shift. That means I am working when most people are sleeping, and I try to sleep when most people are awake. It's funny how many people assume that just because you are home during the day, you must be awake. Doesn't quite happen that way. You gotta sleep sometime. I get home from work around 8.30 in the morning. I spend a little time winding down before I crash, and I sleep between 9 o'clock and 1 o'clock, give or take. I get up after this four-hour nap and have something to eat, maybe take care of some laundry, check the mail. On a good day, I might even find myself behind the computer for an hour to catch up on emails, take care of any financial stuff, and if I'm lucky... Maybe even work on website-related stuff. At about 2.30, I head out the door. Our daughter goes to school half an hour away, and there is no transit between here and there, so my wife drops her off in the morning, and I pick her up in the afternoon. This has been the norm since my wife started working again. The kid gets out at 3, but, of course, she hangs out with some friends while they wait for the bus. And after the bus comes, she ambles over to the car and we head home. Some days we may run a couple errands like hit the grocery store for that night's meals or to replenish our weekly supplies. We get home just after four o'clock. My wife gets home between 5.30 and 6, so I plan dinner for 6 o'clock. The time between 4 and 6 is spent taking care of laundry, washing dishes, and meal prep. Some days I might even be able to steal a little more time at the computer. Between 6 and 7, it's quality time in front of the TV while we eat dinner. Sometime after 7, I make my way back up to the bedroom to catch a few Z's before work. The alarm goes off at 10. I may hit snooze a couple times before I hit the shower and get my lunch together before heading out the door to drive to my job, which is roughly half an hour away. Now, the good is that I managed to get seven hours of sleep. The bad is that it's split up. The weekend starts for me Friday morning, but I am so used to sleeping after work that I tend to take a nap. Now, I try to get up an hour or two earlier than normal so that I can transition to being awake all day Saturday. With a bigger block of time between getting up and going to pick up the kid, I might actually accomplish something. Saturday is my best day 
to do any work on any of my projects. First, I try to get the laundry completely caught up before I try to tick something off my personal to-do list. But of course, there are also other household chores, such as yard work and stuff like that. Sunday is weird because I know that I have to go into work that night. It's a lot like Saturday, except I try to wind down in the afternoon and I only take an evening nap. So that's my week. Now, somewhere in there, I try to put a podcast episode out every two weeks or so. And that includes preparing for the episode, which takes usually a couple hours, sitting down and recording, which usually takes uh, roughly an hour, hour and a half for a half hour episode. Yeah, you know, what with multiple takes and all. Editing will take around an hour or so as well. And then there's post-production and publishing the audio and publishing the show notes page. So yeah, you're looking at five, six hours per episode. And I hope when you see the schedule that I have to work with, this kind of illustrates why I haven't been maintaining a regular release schedule for the podcast. But hey, as long as you subscribe, you will get new episodes whenever I release them. You can find the Thumb and Hammer podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. Yes, Spotify. If you want to reach me, you can contact me through the website, and you can also find me on Twitter at Thumb and Hammer. Well, the website, by the way, is thumbandhammer.com. If you want to support the show, please consider clicking through one of my links the next time you want to purchase something from Amazon. I'll earn a modest commission, and it won't cost you any extra. You know, there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I am so grateful that you took the time to listen to mine. I will talk to you again soon. Cheers.